So indeed, when God comes near, the right thing to do is to get ready. That's what these weeks leading up to Christmas are all about. Getting ready for God coming in our midst, in the flesh. Getting ready for God coming near. Um, if we can throw the slide up. Um, we are starting on a six-month journey in which the invitation to the whole worldwide church is to remember the extraordinary story of Jesus. It doesn't start with Christmas. It doesn't start with a party. It actually starts with a month of waiting and hoping and longing that God will come near and make a difference. This season, the season of waiting, it reveals things about God and it reveals things about us. Um, and indeed, the invitation for us is to prepare and wait and hope. Of all the creatures in the world, we humans are uniquely able to prepare and get ready. In the natural world, um, you know, as winter sets in, animals have one of two strategies. Either they totally stock up and fatten up, or they totally pare down and slim down. I think most of us humans actually do both when December sets in, right? Like Thanksgiving comes, we start like preparing for holiday feasts. Our pantries are full oftentimes this time of year because of the, the parties and the hospitality. Um, the pantries are bursting. And at the same time, um, the days are growing shorter. If you're like me, maybe you need a little more sleep than you did in the middle of the summer. Uh, we have a sense that Maybe it'd be smart to try to like dial it back and do a little less because it's dark for 15 hours a day at this point, right? In the natural world, animals are only able to do one of these two things. So if you're a bear, what do you do? You spend all August, September, maybe even early October just gorging and eating everything you can. I mean, nuts, berries, uh, even earthworms and bugs. I mean, bears will put everything and anything in their mouth. If you're a bear around water, right, you're fishing for salmon in the, the stream, just maximum calories because you're going to take a nap for like five months. That sounds like an amazing way to spend the winter, doesn't it? Just you wake up in March and it's 70 degrees out on a nice warm day. And you're like, oh, that was amazing. And I lost weight. If you're a female bear, however, chances are there's two baby bears crawling up your chest, and you're like, what just happened while I was sleeping? On the other end of the continuum, if you are a reptile or a snake, you do the exact opposite strategy to prepare for winter. You stop eating. You get, like, everything out of your system, out of your digestive tract, because if you're a reptile in the winter, no matter how far underground in your hidey hole you crawl, like, something is going to freeze inside of you if there's a lot of liquid inside you, if you're, if you're a reptile. So snakes, not to be too gross, but they are totally empty, and they crawl far enough underground that they don't actually freeze, but they are hovering at about 37 or 8 degrees Fahrenheit for months and months and months at a time, and they are not sleeping. They are in this strange twilight zone between being, like, conscious and being unconscious, doesn't that sound like an awful way to spend like four or five months of winter? Again, in the animal kingdom, it's like one or the other. With we humans, both are possibilities. 
simultaneously. And spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, God offers invitations to us to do exactly these two things to prepare for his coming in our midst. God both asks us to stock up and to pare down. God is coming, and this is what the season is all about. So our main passage for this morning comes from the Old Testament prophet of Malachi, chapter 4. And here is how Malachi the prophet puts it about God coming near. God talking through Malachi says this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord, who are seeking, will come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will indeed come, says the Lord Almighty. If you can leave this up for a second. This passage confuses me on the surface, okay? It seems like there's all kinds of people who are showing up in the presence of God's people. God says, I'm going to send you a messenger, that's number one. The number two, suddenly the Lord who you are seeking will come to his temple. Seems like a second person. And then number three, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire. Who are all these people? Like, who's going to show up? Thankfully, Jesus himself speaks to this and gives us some interpretation in this passage in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. Here's what Jesus himself says. This is the one about whom it is written, quoting Malachi, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus interprets the promised messenger of Malachi to say, you know who this is? You know who God was promising 400 years ago? John the Baptist. He's the one who's coming immediately before God himself. What is Jesus implying about himself then? Hmm. Hmm. So Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. About 400 years between the writing or the prophesying of that book and when John the Baptist and Jesus arrive on the scene. In between those two moments, there is a epically long period of silence. I mean, God's people are waiting. Is God going to show up? Is God going to say something more? Is he going to do something? Or has he left planet Earth and deserted us, and now we're just left here to figure things out on our own? To make things even a little more dicey, um, we don't know that Malachi was actually a real person. Like, in our culture, the word Malachi is a name. However, in the Hebrew language, Malak means messenger. And if you tack on a little I or E sound to the end, it means my. So the word Malachi or Malachi means my messenger. So it's like, it's the last book in the Old Testament. It's God's last messenger. Is it a person? Is it just the name? We don't know any of these things. All God's people knew, and all we know all these years later, is that there is a long period of silence between Malachi and any arrival of another messenger. The beginning of Malachi, God's people, well, here's what it says, Malachi 1 verse 2. God says, I have loved you. I've loved you all, says the Lord. 
And then here's what God's people say. How have you loved us? Does that sound like happy people? This sounds like people who are coming off a pandemic. Some people who are coming off a long season where they're just waiting for God to do something and what's happening next. And God's people legitimately at the front end of Malachi are saying to God, how have you loved us, God? Are you going to do something again? Are you going to talk again? I mean, this is a for real question in the scriptures and in the book of Malachi. After years of exile and suffering, does God love us or not? Have you ever wondered that in the last couple of years? Does God love us or not? This is a fair question, according to the Bible. When you love someone, one of the things you do is that you show up for them. I mean, that's like the most basic expression for love. Not that you give them awesome presents. Uh, now that you can read their mind and give them exactly what they need every hour of the day. The basic foundation of love is that you're with someone, you commit to being with them, walking alongside of them, and showing up for, for them. Right? This is why at weddings we say, like, I'll be with you for better, for worse, richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. I mean, the strongest promises that we can make to love somebody are this commitment that I am going to be with you no matter what. And when God isn't there for 400 years, like, it's okay for God's people to wonder, like, where is this going? If you've been walking through a long season where you are starved for God to break through or to hear a word from the Lord or for something to change, it is an okay thing to prayerfully come before God and humbly say, like, God, do you love me or not? Are you going to do something? Are you really here alongside me? Please, I want this door to be open. Help me cooperate, God. I need you to show up. These seasons can seem interminably long, sometimes in the scope of our human lives. But I am confident. I mean, one of the privileges that we have as pastors is we get a front row seat oftentimes to the amazing and beautiful things that God does in people's lives to faithfully break through. I personally believe that when we pray prayers like that, when we open the window of our souls, when we give God permission, God is faithful to show up. And the question is not, will God ever come for me? Even though that's a real question, the better question is, are we prepared when God does show up for me? You feel the difference of those two? It's easier to ask, God, are you ever going to come for me? It's a harder and more spiritually real question to ask, am I prepared when God does show up for me? Because we believe in a faithful God, we believe in a God who came from heaven to earth, and if he can do that, he can meet you wherever you happen to be right now. Malachi chapter 3 gets at the heart of this question, are we prepared for the Lord's coming? Listen to these words. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand 
when the Lord appears, for he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap, like lye soap, and he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. The Lord will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. We long for the Lord to come near, but does it sound nice when God arrives? Whew. The Lord is like a powerful soap that burns and cleans away what is dirty. The Lord is like a refiner's fire that burns and purifies what cannot endure. God, our God, the God of the scriptures, is a God of fire. Do you remember when Moses first meets the God who reveals himself as the I am that I am, how God shows up? See a nice chubby little angel? No, it's a burning bush. And Moses has to take his shoes off because he recognizes the holiness and that maybe he's going to get burned up unless he approaches us with absolute reverence and the fear of the Lord. Do you remember how God leads his people once the Israelites cross the Red Sea? There's a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of what by night? A pillar of fire. This is how God routinely reveals himself. Now, the scary part of this, I mean, if you're a kid, I'm not trying to scare you right now. I mean, we hear fire and we think, oh, forest fires, that's bad. Fires burn houses down. The fire department protects us from fire. And indeed, fire can have a destructive power. But fire, the God of fire, the God of scripture, reveals himself this way because of the purifying power of fire, not because of the destructive power of fire. Fire can do both things, right? Um, am I splitting hairs here? Like, no, this is, we have to use our brains about this. Like, say there's one guy, this is a horrible example, but one guy is going to push an old granny out of the way of a bus. Like, that's a good guy, right? There's another guy, a horrible person, who pushes a different old person in front of the bus. Like, it is no good to point at the two of them and say, hey, there's a couple of guys who push old ladies. Thank you. <laughs> on, the, on a dumb sense, like, that is true. They both push people, but one is to save life and the other is to do something horrible. Fire has these two dimensions to it. And when God reveals himself as fire, he does so as the life-giving, purifying force of fire in general. In Malachi 3, God reveals himself as the refiner's fire that refines silver into its pure form. 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, there were not like chemical processes for refining silver. These days we have chemical agents. You can pour on silver and it helps purify it. I'm going to show you a few pictures of what Malachi would have had in mind uh, 2,400 years ago for how silver gets refined. First of all, you don't just take giant pieces of silver out of the ground. That would be nice. Wish I had some in my backyard, but no. Uh, it comes as an ore, usually with lead deposited into some other forms of rock. How do you get the silver out of this rock? How do you turn what's in that dude's left hand into what's in that dude's right hand? Step number one, you have to break up the rocks. Step number two, 
you start a fire so hot that it can start to liquidate the metals into their molten form. Here's what happens chemically speaking, not that Malachi or anybody 2,000 years ago knew about this, but as you heat up the silver, it's in its impure form, there's a lot of oxygen bonded to the silver, and the oxygen molecules all, like, boil off. And as it cools down, unless you take extra steps, the oxygen will bound, bind back to the silver and turn it all kind of, like, fuzzy and hazy once again. So how do you keep the silver in its pure form? Human beings are so clever. As the, as the silver cools down, if you take a piece of carbon or charcoal and rub it on the silver, then the carbon will bond to the silver and produce silver that looks so pristine and so refined and clear that it will almost be like a mirror. That is what a refiner's fire and some human cooperation can do to silver. It can produce a metal so pristine you can actually see your reflection in it. I think this gets at what God's goal is for us. It's what God's goal is when he comes into our midst. What does God want to see in the reflection of his people? God wants to see the reflection of his own holiness. God wants to see the reflection of the face of Jesus Christ in us. But we need some serious refining to get to this point. Why does God do all this? Why would God want to come? Why would God want to refine us? Why would God want to purify this? What is God up to? God's vision is this. God wants to build in you and in us and in his church and in his kingdom. God wants to build a platform, a foundation on which he can build something that lasts unto eternal life. My life is not currently sturdy enough for that. I mean, this is why there's all these building metaphors when John the Baptist says, prepare the way of the Lord. Take the mountains and make them flat. The valleys, fill them up. Does, does God want like a flat surface? Yes, but why? Because he wants to build something. He wants to build something out of you. He wants to build something out of me. He wants to build something that can last not just for the years of this life, but for eternity. That's what God's building project is all about. If this still seems kind of scary, you can take some comfort that God is going to start with the Levites, those poor Levites. Happily, pastors don't count as Levites, I don't think. Okay, there's 12 tribes in Israel, and, and in Malachi, God says he is going to first purify the sons of Levi who are intended to be the spiritual leaders. Here's the bad news, though. On the other side of Jesus, one of the things the Bible says repeatedly is that God has made us all to be a kingdom and priests. <laughs> so we are all the sons and daughters of Levi, and God wants all of us to go through this refining and purifying process. John the Baptist's father was a Levite. His name was Zechariah. We heard some of his words when we were uh, singing the song, Prepare Ye the Way, at the very beginning of this service. 
Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, had a hard time preparing the way for the message of the Lord. This is a not off-remembered part of the Christmas story. The angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, tells him that he and his wife are going to have a son. They're old. They've been trying to have kids forever. He doesn't believe it. Zechariah was not ready to prepare the way for God's will in his life, even though it was happy news that he was receiving. Here's what happened to Zechariah. The angel Gabriel says to him, because you do not believe the word of the Lord, you're going to have a time of quiet, Zechariah, for the nine months of your wife's Elizabeth pregnancy. So Zechariah has a nine-month timeout. Amazing. (laughs) This guy is a priest. This guy is one of the spiritual leaders of the people of Israel. He gets a nine-month timeout. What would be the first thing out of your mouth if you said zero words for nine months? Can you even imagine that? What would be... (laughs) Cheeseburger is what this guy says. Please, a cheeseburger. That's a great response, actually. What would be the first email you would send if you had no emails? What would be the first post you would put up if you put nothing into the digital world for nine months? Probably most of us would be like, guys, I'm back. After nine months of being able to inwardly prepare for God's arrival, Zechariah says this, you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. This guy, after nine months, understands when God shows up, there could be a long waiting period. And he now understands it's not about him. It's not about what he wants. It's about God breaking through and coming in our midst. Again, between Malachi and between this moment, there are 400 years. No books of the Bible are written in those 400 years. There are no prophets. There are little or no miracles. It is a long period of waiting. This is one of the ways that God asks us in 2021 to prepare the way for him, to be willing to wait for God to do what only God can do. However, God also invites us to prepare by filling us up, just like a bear. I'm going to tell you a final little story. Um, or it's a situation. I think this happened to me, but I can't say for sure. But imagine this situation. There's a little kid playing around the Christmas tree. You know, maybe get into some trouble, opening the corners of some presents, messing around, doing some things that a kid shouldn't do. And um, dinner is being made by mom or dad in the kitchen. And a parent comes in and says, stop messing with the presents. Like, we're going to open those on Christmas. Okay? Like, I'm warning you. So my memory is, like, that happened to me a lot. I divert to something else, probably start bugging my brother, mess around with something else. Parent comes back in and says, like, stop doing that. It's almost dinner time. So then you divert to plan C, and you start rifling through the cupboard, seeing if there's anything else that you can create some chaos in. And the parent comes in and says, this is the last time. Don't make me count to three. 
Has any parent ever said that to a child? Don't make me count to three. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty. Yes, I said this to my kids many, many times. This is how it is between God and his people. The prophets are warning God's people again and again and again, and here's what happens. Here's what happened to me as a kid. One, you're not really going to punish me, are you? Still messing around. Two, uh-oh. Bing! Time for dinner. Have you ever had this experience? A disciplinary countdown, and then it's dinner time. I have this warm memory of something like that happening where salvation came in my little life just because I could not stop my nonsense, but then it was time for dinner. And we gathered around the table, and what happened in my house growing up at dinner time? We would share an opening prayer together, and then the food would get divided out. Delicious food. It's almost Christmas. Some of my siblings would start telling stories, and there would be laughter. And what happened in this situation? I was saved from myself by the fact that mom and dad made dinner. The table intervened with my life. And that is the flip side of how God asks us to prepare because God knows that we cannot ultimately refine ourselves, purify ourselves, make ourselves right, prepare ourselves. It's as if the prophets are counting down one, two, and then God's table intervenes. That's where we are, friends. We are spiritually waiting for God to do what only God can do. And happily, time and time again, God intervenes and invites us right here to Jesus' table to feed us, to give us energy, to give us hope, to give us confidence, which is built on not what we just did in the last week, but what Jesus has accomplished for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we invite you to draw near, not just on the Christmas holiday, but to the deep places of our soul. And Lord, there are things in all of our lives that need to be refined, that need to be pushed over, that routinely block you from having all of us. And as boldly as we can this morning, God, we ask that you will help us cooperate in burning up those obstacles. And we thank you, Lord, that you are so kind and gracious that you invite us to your table no matter what state we're in. So humbly as repenting sinners, Jesus, we want to say yes to you. We want to come near and we want to receive the food that is you. In your name we pray, precious Lord. Amen.